Well, let's turn to 1 Timothy. Actually, before I get all settled here, uh, I'm actually going to have John Barry come up and uh, read this section to us. We're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 4 this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 4. So, John, if you'd come and read. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Thank you, John. Well, as you hopefully recall, Paul was writing to his young co-worker, Timothy, who he left at Ephesus. And he was there to set things in order. Although Paul, like I said earlier, had been there for two years previous to this, uh, at this point he felt like he needed to leave, and he left Timothy there to uh, deal with some of the situations that were arising at that time. As far as just a basic uh, summary of why Paul wrote this, Paul says this, he says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, 
I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. <clears throat> Some people think that he may have uh, actually been thinking about this temple when he talks about the church being the pillar and support of truth, because here is a, a massive building with these uh, pillars, huge pillars, displaying a false religion. But the church is supposed to display the true, the true religion, yeah. and that's uh, why he says it's uh, the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. So I want to give just a very brief review here. We've seen that Paul says early on in the letter that the, the goal of Christian instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And he says that some of us are starting to stray away from that, those very basic things, and making shipwreck of their faith. And also he says that they are getting off into fruitless discussion, and myths and fables. So Paul is exhorting Timothy to stand against all those deviations from the truth. Rather, Timothy was to emphasize the primary importance of prayer in the church. He was to emphasize the proper adornment and roles of women, the qualifications for the elders of a church, uh, the great, and the great essential doctrines of the faith, especially those related to Christ, the person of Christ. Those were the type of things that would help Establish the church at Ephesus on the right foundation. He then went on to warn Timothy of a falling away from the faith that was coming, telling him to stand against any false asceticism, things like forbidding marriage and uh, abstaining from foods, and it pointed out to him the importance of disciplining himself for the purpose of godliness. So he keeps coming back to the very basic things. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, which means uh, a discipline that would bring forth God-like conduct, Christ-like conduct. He says that's profitable not only for this life, but for the life to come. He says it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that godliness is profitable in all things. Godliness is profitable in all things since it holds promise for this present life and also for the life to come. So, I think what he's saying here is above all, above all, pursue godliness, pursue Christ, pursue holiness. Those are synonymous. If you're going to pursue godliness, you're going to be pursuing Christ. If you're going to pursue Christ, you're going to be pursuing holiness. Another place... Uh, in Hebrews, it says, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. So pursue. Make, make it an active endeavor to pursue godliness. Which then brings us to verse 10. For, this, for it is this that we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. When Paul says, for this we labor and strive, what's he referring to? Well, I think he's referring to the wonderful promise of life both now and in eternity. This is what we're aiming at. This is, a, this is the, 
the prize, the, the, this is where, we're, where we're headed. So he's saying that we need to press on and endure hardship, not because we think that our striving will earn our salvation, but just because we realize that the way of the cross leads home. We, that's uh, part of what Christ taught us over and over again. Follow me. Our hope is not in our physical efforts or endurance, but in the living God. We've fixed our sure and certain hope of eternity upon him. So pursue him. And this is what we labor and strive in this area. Ultimately, our only hope is a settled, sure, unchangeable character of the eternal God. That's our hope. The one who has the ability and the readiness and the willingness to save. The one true and living God who spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all. He's the ever-living and true and living God. And Paul calls him in this verse the Savior of all men, especially of believers. What's he mean by that phrase, the Savior of all men? Well, we already dealt with that subject a little bit anyway. Back in chapter 2, let's turn back and read verses 3 and 4. Actually, Paul's talking about here, telling Timothy that uh, prayers should be made on behalf of all men, kings and all who are in authority. And then he says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So Paul is telling us that we can pray on behalf of all men because Christ died for all people without distinction. He desires all men to be saved. That doesn't mean that he's decreed that every person will be saved, but that we can come to him in prayer as one who has declared himself to be the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Does not matter who the person is that we're bringing before God, or where they live, or what they've done. We should never view anyone as outside the potential saving grace of grace and power of God. No one's too young, too old, too rich, too poor, too wise, too foolish, too bad, or too good for God to be their Savior. He's He's the living God. But the living God is also the loving God and has confined the offer of salvation to no one class of people. He has not limited the atonement to one division of humanity. This is really what the Jews thought. They thought we are God's special people and everybody else is outside of that area, that uh, grace and love of God. He will save all who are willing to embrace his gracious salvation in Christ. Now, Paul was probably emphasizing this fact that God can and will save everyone who believes because of the false teachers who were saying that only those who had a special knowledge, a special mystical understanding of things, and who practiced certain forms of asceticism would be saved. Paul says, no, that's not the case. We've set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. Yes. 
Paul tells Timothy to prescribe and teach these things. You see that in the next verse, verse 11. Prescribe and teach these things. Keep on presenting these great truths. Some will stray away from these things. Some will teach fables and myths. Some will fall away from the faith. But you keep on commanding and teaching God's truth. He says that in, in verse 11. He says it again in verse 15. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress may be evident to all. So, I mean, he's, he's saying, you know, this isn't going to be easy. Take pains in these things and you be absorbed in them. Be consumed by this. These basic truths that God is the Savior of all men. Take the gospel out. Share it by word and example. Verse 12 deals with Timothy's personal conduct as a Christian leader. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. You might remember from past messages that Timothy was probably a somewhat sickly person. He had frequent ailments, Paul says. So he was somewhat sickly, probably a rather timid young man, as many admonitions that Paul, as Paul gives him to, to uh, stand up and fight. So sickly, somewhat timid, and he was younger than uh, quite a few of the people he would have been dealing with. When Paul first met him, he was probably in his mid-20s, by the time Timothy was, by the time this letter was sent to Timothy, he was probably in his mid-30s. So Paul realized that he might be ministering, Timothy might be ministering to people older than him. So he says, let no one look down on your, on your youthfulness. Keep that from happening, Paul tells him, to conduct himself in such a way as to earn the respect of the people there in Ephesus. He was to be a pattern, a model an example. The actual Greek word there is typo. That's where we get our word type from. A type, a, uh, a, an example. He was to be a example of a mature, of what a Christian maturity would look like. And he should silence any criticism of his age by his godly conduct. Paul specifically mentions five areas uh, related to his personal character. The first two deal with outward, his outward manner. The next three, his inward disposition. So first of all, his outward manner, his speech, his personal conversation. I mean, people go a lot by just how we speak to them. And his speech, I think he would, Paul would say, should be sound and serious, and in some sense, slow. Not that he would be slow of speech, but slow to speak. We're told that in James, and I think, you know, he's not supposed to be a, a loudmouth. So, in his speech, and then in his conduct, that would be his general behavior, his habits, his manners, uh, that type of thing should be worthy of his calling. He's a Christian. His conduct should be Christ-like. How he acts and reacts should be God-honoring, in other words. 
So Paul's saying in your speech, in your conduct, your outward behavior. But then he turns to the more inward dispositions. He mentions love, for instance. In your speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Love is seeking the welfare of others. Genuine concern for your neighbor. Seeking the good of others. Surely one of the great authenticating marks of the Christian leader is that he cares for others. I mean, that should just be basic. It should be basic for a Christian, any Christian, but especially a leader. He cares about other people. If you would be great in God's kingdom, learn to be a servant of all. A loving servant. So love. And then he mentions faith. Be an example of one who believes the truth, who trusts Christ, who relies on God's word. I think it has the, uh, the idea there of loyalty. Loyalty to Christ. Faithfulness to Christ. So in love and faith. And then he mentions purity, which has to do with moral cleanness. Purity. You're set your mind is set, your heart is set on holy desires. And then that's followed up with a consistency of holy actions. Your desires are pure, your actions. So, you say, Paul's telling, seeking, telling Timothy to have his thoughts and actions increasingly conformed to the life of Christ. Now, he's speaking to Timothy here, but these things are for all of us. It's, it's basic Christianity. We should all be modeling the type of, this type of behavior that Paul's talking about here. But I think it's especially important for a Christian leader because they're more in the spotlight. They're an example to the believers. They're also being watched by the world. So, Paul says, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. In verse 13, then, Paul turns to Timothy, from, he turns from Timothy's private life to his public ministry in the gathering of God's people. In other words, he's talking here just life in general. Now he's, now he's zeroing in on Timothy's involvement with the church as such, especially in, as the church gathers together. We've already seen that he is to emphasize the primacy of prayer. You remember that back in chapter 2? We already looked at that just briefly here, but he, he says, I, I, Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. So one of the things that Paul was to or that Timothy was to emphasize was prayer in the public assembly. But he was also, there's another area that he goes into here, and that is uh, the reading, actually three areas. They're all kind of uh, involved together here. The public reading of scripture, exhortation, and teaching. So he says, give attention to the public reading of scripture and exhortation and teaching. The public reading of scripture was vital. It was of vital importance in that day because many people couldn't read. A lot of the church back then was made up of slaves. 
so a lot of the church couldn't read, and even if they could read, very few had access to the written word. Why would that be? Well, if you remember, the printing press was not even invented till 1437. Well, we just take it for granted we can get copies of the Bible. That was not the case back then. Uh, copies of the Old, Old Testament scriptures were few and expensive. It all had to be done by hand. So Paul says, give attention to the public reading of scripture so people can hear the word of God. And even the, the New Testament, as it was, it was just coming together at this time, and so you see things like in Colossians where Paul says this. He says, uh, and when this letter, this is uh, Colossians chapter uh, 4 and verse 16. And when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that's coming from Laodicea. In other words, read these letters in public so people can hear what's being, because they didn't have copies. They didn't have, they didn't have the New Testament and even the Old Testament. Uh, there were very few copies of that. So the, the importance then of the public reading of Scripture. Uh, but it's still vital for us today, uh, even, even if we have five Bibles at home. When we gather together to worship, there should be the public reading of Scripture. God continues to bless the reading of his word. And it's not something that we should just rush through in order to get to the preaching. I have to say that sometimes I've, I've kind of had that attitude. Well, I'll get this out of the way, and then I can start preaching. That's not the right attitude. Uh, the Word of God is the foundation for the preaching. Uh, and the fact is, you didn't come together here today to hear me. You want to hear the Word of God. And so we need to read the Word of God, and anything I say needs to be compared to the Word of God. So, the importance of the public reading of Scripture. But Paul said that there should be something more than simple reading of the text. There should be an exhortation. See how he says it? Give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. What would that involve? Well, I think it would involve bringing home the truths of the text with both encouragements and warnings. Exhortation is bringing home the truths of the text with encouragements and warnings. See, it's never enough just to re, uh, receive information or for me to impart information. The pastor is supposed to make an application to the daily life. A.W. Tozer said this, he said, The purpose behind all doctrine is to secure moral action. Another writer said, Christian, Christianity is truth, but it is truth in action. So there should be some exhortation to put these things into practice. Think of the Bible itself. It's much more than a 
than a book of facts about God and man and the universe. It's a book of exhortation based on these facts. A large portion of the scriptures is devoted to an urgent effort to persuade people to alter, alter their ways and to bring their lives into conformity with the re revealed will of God in his word. I mean, we come together so we can hear the word of God so that the word of God can change us yeah. through the spirit of God. But reading and exhortation is still incomplete without teaching. Give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Bringing out the plain meaning of the text. One of the great means of growth in the Christian life is a consistent exposition of, of the Word of God. You remember that one of the qualifications for an elder is that he's able to teach, able to teach, making the Word of God plain to the people. So what Paul is saying is there needs to be this proper balance of the public reading of Scripture, the exhortation, and the teaching along with prayer as the church gathers together for worship and just, just to uh, be together. Prayer, reading the scripture, exhortation, teaching. Uh, along this line, I want to quote to you the description of an early church service by a man named Justin Martyr. Now, he has the last name Martyr because that's what he was. Uh, he was killed for his faith in 165 A.D. But about 10 years before his death, he wrote an apology of the Christian faith, or a, it's a defense of the Christian faith. He was writing it to the emperor at that time, just trying to make clear to the emperor what Christianity really was and what it was all about and what Christians did. There was a lot of false ideas about Christianity. So Justin was making this apology, this defense. And one of the interesting parts of this defense has to do with his description of an early church service. Uh, here's part of the section then on, on how he describes his Christian gathering. Uh, He says, on the day called Sunday, there is a gathering together in the same place of all who live in a given city or rural district. So the Christians gather together on this day called Sunday. Um, the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read. So you got the, the apostles. The writings of the prophets, that would be the Old Testament, and the memoirs of the apostles are read as long as time permits. Then when the reader ceases, the president in a discourse admonishes and urges the imitation of these good things. There's the exhortation, you see. Admonishes and urges the imitation of these good things. Next we all rise together and send up prayers. So there's the praying. Uh, and he says when we've ceased praying bread is brought and wine and water so they, then they have their 
time of communion or remembering the Lord. Uh, he goes on and talks about their singing at that time. And then there's a, he says, those who have means and are willing, each according to their own choice, gives what he wills. So there's, there's a, a giving, you see. And then he talks about how this is distributed, distributed to the orphans and widows, those in, in sickness, those in need, those in prison, strangers sojourning with them. In other words, taking care of one another. So that's, it's just a very, uh, I think, uh, interesting description. This would be the church in about uh, 150 A.D. So, the importance of prayer, the importance of the scriptures, exhortation, teaching. One of the primary functions of the elders of a church is to equip the saints. Equip the saints, and that comes partly through a clear exposition of the scriptures so that the church can be the pillar and support of truth in the world. By teaching, by exhortation, by example, the elders are to equip the church so that God's people can properly, properly display God's truth to the world. Well, I want to then close by a very brief look at these last, uh, last three verses of, of this chapter. Um, let me just read them here. He says, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed upon you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery, Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress may be evident to all. Pay pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Paul is encouraging his younger co-worker to diligently apply himself to his ministry. Now, this is something Paul has done a number of times throughout the letter. Just let me remind you here. He says in verse 18 of chapter 1, I command, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that you may fight the good fight. And then in chapter 5, verse 21, He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in the spirit of partiality. So a solemn charge he gives to Timothy here. Chapter 6, verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. So fight the fight, he says. Uh, Verse 14. Well, verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and the Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain and reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And just one more, verse 20, Old Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoid worldly and empty chatter. So just uh, 
really pressing home to Timothy to diligently apply himself to the Christian life and especially his, his particular calling and giftedness as a leader there uh, in the church. Do not neglect. Take pains in these things. Play close attention to the, this. See how he's just really emphasizing to him uh, strongly, as strongly as he can. Specifically, he was not to neglect the spiritual gift, the charisma, that's the Greek word, charisma, the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed upon, upon Timothy through prophetic utterance and the laying on of hands. God has specially gifted him for this calling. Paul brings that out a number of places. And he was not to neglect that gift. He had a responsibility to exercise the gift and calling that God had, had given to him. So I would say this. It is possible for God's gifts, I think, to wither if they're neglected. Paul says, don't let that happen. Don't let it happen. In fact, in 2 Timothy, he puts it kind of in a more positive uh, tone. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6 for this reason, I remind you, kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So don't neglect, kindle afresh. Stir things up. Get, get active in this. Don't just uh, sit back. Don't neglect the gifts that God has given you. I want to say something just in general to us along that line. I think this is something for us all to consider because according to the word of God, we all have gifts, each one of us. Audrey brought that out a little bit earlier. Let's turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But each one of you is given a, a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Paul says, he's talking to every Christian here. You have some manifestation, some gift, some enabling from God for yourself. No, for the common good. For the common good. Uh, verse 11. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. But note the point. He distributes to each one individually as he wills. What gift, what enabling he's given you for the good, the common good. And you see it again in verse 18. But now God has placed the members, each one of them, there it is again, each one, every, every member, every part of the body of Christ, in the body just as he desired. Uh, so maybe one last place there this comes out if you turn over to First Peter. Chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. As each one has received a special gift. Now again, I'm trying to emphasize every Christian sitting in this room today is gifted in some way for the common good. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another. There's a common good idea. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. 
Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so as by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. For God to be properly glorified in this group of believers, in this body of believers, each member needs to be exercising the gift that God's given them. We say, well, what's my gift? Well, I, I don't know what your gift is, but if you start serving, maybe you'll find out what it is. Because it's all related to the common good, you see. So if there's a need, see if you can do something about that. You might find your, your gift in that area. You know, this thing of gifting, uh, people get all bent out of shape looking at these various lists of gifts and say, well, I don't know if I have this, that, and the other thing. Well, you stick all those lists together and you get about 18 gifts. But that's not the end of the gifting that God does. Now, there's manifold gifts of God we don't have to be able to stick a certain label upon it. So uh, all I'm doing here, I'm trying to do a little exhortation. <laughs> you have a gift. I know you do because you're a Christian. God gives at least a gift, one gift, maybe many, to each of his people for the common good. So don't neglect it. Don't neglect uh, you know, you see a need, think, maybe I'm the one that's supposed to do something about that. It's possible, you know. That might be what God used to show you more of where your gifts are. So, we must all be concerned about neglecting the gifts that God has given us, or not neglecting those gifts. We each have a function in the body of Christ, and if we neglect that function, that duty, it's a duty, it's a gift, it's a responsibility, it's a duty. We're not all, it's not only going to be detrimental to us, it will be detrimental to others. If we exercise by faith the gift that God has given us, if we truly take pains in these things, it's not always that easy to serve one another, but if we take pains in these things, our progress will be evident to all might not be evident to us so much, but it will be evident to others as they see us serving one another. So, if we will immerse ourselves in God's truth and his promises and his purposes for us, then our Christian development will be evident. See how he says it in verse 16. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Of course, he's speaking to Timothy here. Persevere in these things. It's an ongoing area of activity in our lives. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation for, both for yourself and for those who hear you. Uh, what kind of things is he talking about when he says, these things, see how he says, pay close attention to yourself. Persevere in these things. He says it in verse 15, take pains in these things. What's he talking about when he uses that little phrase? Well, I think he's, he's talking about the things that he's mentioned already in the letter, but particularly what he said in this section that we've been looking at here. 
the things that God had called Timothy to and gifted him for, things like standing against false doctrine, nourishing himself on the words of faith and sound doctrine, disciplining himself for the purpose of godliness, conducting himself in love and faith and purity, not neglecting his spiritual gifts, fixing his hope on the living God. Take pains in those things. Be absorbed in them. Pay close attention to those things. If Timothy would persevere in those things, he would both save himself and those that hear him. Now, what's he mean by that? You save yourself? We know God, Christ is the one that saves us. I think he's using the word saved in a, in a broad, in its broader meaning here. Not just Timothy's initial salvation, his justification, when he was saved from the penalty of sin, but also his progressive salvation, his sanctification, as he more and more is saved from the power of sin. And I think Paul would also include Timothy's final salvation, his glorification, when he would be saved from the presence of sin. But I think the primary emphasis would be his progressive salvation, the daily working out of his salvation with fear and trembling. So what I think he's talking about here when he says, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Uh, working out his salvation, pursuing all that God has called him to be. And I think we can make an application of this to our own lives here also. If you and I will persevere in these things, what things? Nourishing yourself on the words of faith and sound doctrine, disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness, conducting ourselves in love and faith and purity, not neglecting the spiritual gifts that God has given us, fixing our hope on the living God. Persevere in those things, you see, and you will save both yourself and those who hear you. We will be working out our sanctification and we'll be helping others to be working out their sanctification also. So, may God help us by his grace to persevere in these things. This wasn't just for Timothy. I mean, Timothy is an example. He was supposed to be an example. But the reason he was supposed to be an example so that the other Christians there would start living like this. And he's, he's an example to us also. So, we need to persevere in these things that uh, Paul was pointing out to Timothy. Well, that was this section, chapter 4, that started out saying, but the Spirit expressly says in the latter times some will fall away from the faith. Paul is, is to do all he can do to keep that from happening and make sure that God's true people don't get sidetracked on lesser things, fables and myths and uh, false asceticism. Don't get sidetracked. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Don't get sidetracked. And Paul was leaving Timothy there in Ephesus to keep that from happening. 
Well, next time we'll start with chapter 5, and uh, Lord willing, go on and see more of this instruction that Paul was giving Timothy so that the church would be the pillar and support of truth there in the midst, in the midst of a great deal of darkness, deception, false religion. God was raising up a people that would be the, a pillar and support of truth. And Timothy was to build those people up in the faith so that they would stand strong in the world and be a testimony.